And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. For my money, one of the most interesting and thoughtful young journalists in this country is Alex Wagner. She's done a lot of different things. Uh, Now she's writing for the Atlantic Monthly, uh, thoughtful pieces on the politics and culture of our times. And she just started as the co-anchor of the CBS Morning News on Saturday. Alex, as you remember, was a longtime host of her own program on MSNBC. Uh, She came to the Institute of Politics the other night to talk about her role in The Circus, that great Showtime production covering the campaign. And then she dropped by for a conversation with me. Alex Wagner, welcome. Welcome here. Welcome to the Institute of Politics. Um, we know each other from <laughs> from your show, mm-hmm. uh, you, uh, late of MSNBC, uh, also because your husband is a friend of mine, Sam Cass, who, who mm-hmm. worked w- w- with the Obamas for years. But you have such an interesting story, <laughs> and I, I want you to talk about that, about First of all, I, I knew your dad. Yeah. Way back when, when I was a young reporter, and he was a legend as a <laughs> as the field general for Ted Kennedy back in 1980. Your your dad is like a honest to god political warrior. He's gonna clip this audio piece and save it and play it every time he walks <laughs> into a room, David. That's very generous of you. Um, yeah, my dad is has a, an incredible mind for politics. Um, and I w- Why? What, how did he, what drew him to politics? You know, he grew up in a tiny town in northeast Iowa. Um, and I'm actually writing about that side of the family in my upcoming book. Which we want to talk which about. Which we'll talk about later. Yes. But um, he grew up in an, uh, you know, an Irish Catholic family. He had five brothers and sisters. Um, my, my dad's dad was a post a mail delivery man in rural Iowa and his mom was a housewife um and the ethic of work and community those were really powerful organizing principles in that house um and my dad really believes in the democracy um but also felt I think uh, he was really ambitious you know no most of the family stayed in the Midwest. My dad went to Washington because he wanted to work on hunger and he wanted to help write the federal food stamp wow. bill. Um, and he has, I mean, and my dad, go to, this was at, uh, he went to school. This or? is, yeah, he went to Loris college, another tiny college in Iowa. Yeah, in Iowa and then yeah. he did his graduate work at the university of Iowa in Des Moines. Uh-huh. And that's where he got interested in, um, hunger policy and came to Washington and then got involved in, you know, it was the early 70s. He worked on the McGovern campaign, which mm-hmm. was a formative experience for, I think, a lot of young yeah, people. Including the Clintons. Yeah. And that's where he met Bill Clinton, actually. Um, and so by the time Ted Kennedy was running, you know, there's there was always, as you know, David, there are insurgent and establishment wings of each party. Yes. And my dad has always belonged to the insurgent. Yeah. And so when Kennedy was running to challenge Jimmy Carter, my dad was on board and became the field director. He probably also worked with him on some of these issues. Sure. That if you were interested in any of these issues, hunger and the, Ted Kennedy would exactly. be the place you'd go. He was the lion of yeah. the Senate. Um. And I had been born by the time my dad was working on the Kennedy campaign. And there's a story that he loves to tell, which is that, um, you know, this is in the day before the internet, obviously. And, you know, 
you'd do everything by phone. My yes. dad would come home every night and he'd pick up the phone and say, give me the numbers, which is what you said to get the poll numbers, whatever the data well, was. I've lived that life, I know. Right, so you know this. Yes. When I was two, I would stand on the kitchen chair and pick up the receiver. There was no one at the other end of the line. And I'd just say, give me the numbers, because that's what my dad did. So I like to think that you know politics has always yeah. been in my blood. My uh I, my, I would come home and my wife would hand me one of the babies and I'd be on the phone pacing as I do. <laughs> and the kids would fall asleep to the drone of my voice, but my little babies would always be going, hello, hello, <laughs> pretending they had phones in their, that's what, in their hands. That's What better education do you need? But listen, if you, if you do the work that your dad did or that I did, um, you know, those late night calls. I used to, Joel Benenson, who would poll for Hillary Clinton, was the pollster for uh, Barack Obama as well. And I used to, he was the first person I spoke spoke to in the morning and the last person I spoke to at night, which really pissed him off because he said, look, the numbers aren't going to change from one in the morning to six in the morning, okay? <laughs> Relax. But I just Stop ne- calling. I, I, I just needed to probe, you know? Well, it becomes a ritual too, right? Like yeah. it's what you do. But it's also... You know, I think, and your dad would appreciate this, there is something about the experience of being in a campaign like that um, that is so all-enveloping. In fact, you know, you as a child must have felt, I mean, he probably wasn't around a lot. Wait, he was gone. I think in, in, in 1980, he was gone something like 320 days out of the year. He was like a shadowy figure more than no, he was, know. you know. I mean, listen, and but your touch your the touchstones for fatherhood become these moments where it's you see your dad picking up the phone and asking for the numbers, right? I actually have a great deal of guilt about this, mm. about the sacrifices that my kids made uh because I was I had a life in politics and before that even in journalism I was traveling. Sure. Uh a lot and you know when you're young and ambitious you think that this is the most important thing. I'm, I'm trying to save the world. I have to, um, and then you realize that your first responsibility is to is to your own family. And uh, I kind of realized that too late. I think I, I sent my son when I was writing uh, my memoirs uh, a few pages about that because he was just about to have his own child. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Don't don't do your kid what I did to you." And his response was, we're going to talk about that someday, Dad, but I, I, I'm not ready to talk about it yet. So, Yeah, I mean, I will say my mom, I, I, so much of my, you know, people hear about my dad being involved yeah. in politics, yes. and they think my appetite for world affairs comes from him necessarily, but my mom was hugely, if not more influential in terms of helping cobble together my understanding of the world. And she comes from Burma yes. and became an American citizen. How'd she have, what, what was the... Um, how did she meet your dad? Um, they <laughs> so my mom came over from Burma. Um, she was basically in exile. Um, my my grandfather was involved in the government in Burma before it fell in a military uh, coup, and my grandmother had gotten her master's degree in library science. And the the Library of Congress needed someone to head their East Asian Books Department, and my grandmother was very well qualified for the job. And they basically brought our family over from Burma. And um, so my mom came over and she got a full scholarship to go to Swarthmore um, mm. College. And she was very radical, 70s progressive. And um, 
she was she went down to DC to work at the Teamsters Union, um, which is where my dad was working at the time. And he hired her. And my mom said she on the first day of work came home and said, I have just the worst boss ever. I hate him. And then she ended up marrying could, him. Could, could have been worse. It could have been Jimmy Hoffa. That's also true. Earlier. I could be Alex Hoffa. Things would be very different today <laughs> if that was the case. Yeah. That's interesting. The Teamsters yeah. Union. Yeah. Teamsters Union brought them together. Is a classic, you know, 1970s labor story. Yeah. You know, my my first job was at the Chicago Tribune. I started working there after college. And I got a job as a sub, summer intern, which I worked into a job at the paper. I but in any case, the the second day I was there, uh, the Teamsters Union had just voted Frank Fitzsimmons, who was the president who succeeded yep. Hoffa. Yep. Uh, he's probably president when your dad yes. was working And my there. mom remembers him well. He, they, he had just voted himself like a 700% pay raise or something. And so the city desk's guy says, uh, this old city editor named Donna Grella, kind of a uh, crusty old newsman, says, I want you to run out and find some Teamsters and ask them how they feel about this. So I'm like 21 years old, and I'm all I want is a job, and I'll do anything. I mean, if they had told me to jump off the roof, I would have jumped <laughs> off the roof. So he says, go down to the loading dock at 26th and, and I think 26th and Blue Island or something, and and uh, and see what they have to say. So I naively go down there, and like every almost everyone I talked to said, you know, get the hell off my truck. You're trying to get me killed. You know, I don't, but then there were there were a few people who were really pissed and really spoke out against the. And I got enough. I just I wasn't going to leave until I got enough quotes for a story. But tenacity. But it was. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of fear. <laughs> the teamsters were not to yeah. be messed around. No, with. no. And of course, Fitzsimmons. You know uh, his. There's always been speculation about his relationship to uh, Hoffa's disappearance. Sure. But, uh, but your dad didn't disappear. No, my parents are both still alive. Yes. And there have been no horse heads left in any beds. <laughs> so, um, you know, they, they exited the Teamsters peacefully, which is all you can really ask for, right? Uh-huh. So, they, and, what, and what was she doing down there? She was working. She was. So she majored in political science at Swarthmore, and she was putting out a, some kind of newspaper with a French boyfriend for, in West Philadelphia. Before then, the, not for the Teamsters. No, this is before the Teamsters. And then she went and um, wanted to work, you know, in Washington. I think a lot of people, you know, one of the things that was happening in those days, David, and I know that you know this, is people would go to Washington because they wanted to change the world. Yes, you know, and people would flock to it not just if they had a job in the administration, but because there was a sense that that was where change happened. And my mom, you know, I think people were really engaged at that period. There was a flourishing of kind of intellectual liberalism and practical liberalism, and um, she was really attracted to it and got a job at the Teamsters Union because they were looking for. Her. Yeah, I actually miss that. I hope I wish we could rekindle that because they're still making decisions in Washington Absolutely. that have momentous importance and you know people and yet people have an aversion to it so it leaves the decision making to people who you know you may not want to be making the decision Absolutely and there are also a lot of good people there who are under appreciated absolutely you know but but it is i mean that's where cha- it may not be the change you want to see but big decisions are happening in washington every day and yeah. public service has been so denigrated that's one of the real tragedies i think of the last few years yeah well we'll see what happens in this in the trumpian in the trump era, or in the brave new world it could go one of two ways yeah. i mean people could say 
I'm I've had it and I'm not and I'm not going to contend with this. Another could be a revival in the and since the election, I've heard from a lot of uh, friends of mine who are on the progressive side uh, saying, uh, you know, I'm. I'm re-energized. I want to get back into this. I, you know, people who had been in the Obama campaigns and went off to industry mm-hmm. and so on, saying, "No, I'm, I'm, I'm coming back." So we'll, we'll see what happens. So your mom and dad met and married and married, and then had a kid in short order, and then my dad started working in earnest again on campaigns, and my mom uh, was working for a number of nonprofits in D.C. And, you know, their shining light, their favorite child, Alex Wagner, was enrolled in uh, Montessori School and then public school in Washington, D.C. And that's where I was born and raised. And and what how what was that like growing up in in Washington? Did you feel like you were part of the or was your uh, the sort of government and politics part of the town? Were your classmates part of that or did you were you apart from that? Was there a, a different life? I So I think very much politics and the world were with me when I was growing up in a way that I don't think would have been the case if I had been in, say, New York City. I mean, there was, I just remember in high school, we were always on the mall marching for something. Um, and maybe that's just because there wasn't that much else to do in DC. But the, the sense of civic engagement was really pronounced. I mean, and I remember feeling really political at a young age, like my parents actually had enrolled me in one of Washington's best private schools for high school. And I said, I'm not going there. I'm staying in the public school system. And they said, well, you, you that's not, not, that is not an option. You have to stay. You're going to the school. We've paid like the deposit. It's happening. What kind of progressives were they? Um, exactly. And I said, you know, I remember feeling really strongly when Bill Clinton came to that town and didn't look seriously at any of the D.C. public schools and immediately rolled his daughter in Sidwell. And I wrote a letter to the Clintons because I was just so indignant about that. How old were you? I was 13 at the time. Mm. Yeah, 13. Um, And that was like this spirit of kind of, you know, you have to invest in public education and the way you change the system is by, you know, being part of the PTA, being part of the student body, trying to change it from within. And my parents were like, you know, but we're not sacrificing your education for this. And I sort of went about and did all my research. And I said, these are the programs that I can be a part of at this at Wilson, my senior high school. These are the teachers that I'm going to have. And I promise you this is going to work out okay. And it did. That's pretty remarkable for a 13-year-old. Now, your well, dad- the, the protest was when I was 15 because I was going from junior high all right, school to high school. Okay, so, I don't yeah. want to split hairs about this. You were <laughs> precocious. Let's just leave it at that. What about uh, your, your dad had a relationship with Bill Clinton, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And uh, he advised him back in the 80s when he was thinking yeah. about running. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of a sort of famous story that's – I mean, like, they were cl- they knew each other from the McGovern era and mm-hmm. it stayed kind of close in democratic circles and, you know um, – How'd your dad make a living during this? He was after his strat- working as a strategist and consultant. You mm-hmm. know, kind of it was they were Republican years in the eighties for the most part, and so I remember him as sort of a part of a tandem with Paul Tully. Yeah, he did who, some work with Paul who Tully, was a, really a legendary organizer, an amazing human being who was working for the Democratic Party in nineteen ninety two and died in the middle of that campaign, exactly. and he became sort of a martyr of the yeah. of the campaign. But anyway, so nine, the eighties. Respect for bringing up Paul Tully. We don't mention his name enough, but he was one of the Democratic A great guy. Really Really a great guy. I mean, a great guy. My dad actually set up a trust for his daughters to go Uh. to school. Um, So... Yeah, he was, you know, he was consulting. You know, I think, you know, there's a sort of wash. He was working on various projects. 
dipping in and out of this and that, um, you know, the Gary Hart campaign, yeah. et cetera. Um, and then at one point, Clinton was going to run. And I think it's I talked to my dad about this potential bid. And Chelsea was still really young. And I remember m- my mom and dad talked to him and said, you know, you, you should wait till she's older. And I'm sure this is advice he got from other people as well, but he decided to take it and decided to delay his initial run until 1992, which proved to be, I think, a good decision. Well, um, plainly. And, it, and your dad, did did he participate? I know Tully was involved. Did your dad? You know, like, he was, I think, tangent, sort of in, in, in invested as less than involved in the 92 campaign. We were in Little Rock that night, I remember. You know, he was like doing his part, but he wasn't any kind of big mocker in the campaign by any stretch of the imagination. He was just really excited to see a Big mocker, good cultural awareness there. Well, you know, that's me, David. (laughs) Uh, He was, I mean, he was thrilled. I just remember he was so thrilled to see a Democrat win the White House. He'd been on so many losing campaigns. Yeah, the 80s were pretty barren. Oh, yeah. Now, you went on to to Brown. Yeah. Uh, So the public schools did did you well. They did me well, right. I mean, what was the point of going to some... Well, I mean, Brown was a great Brown was a great college to go to. I'm really happy that I got in and that I attended and I graduated. I read that you uh, went there uh, planning to study Egyptology. <laughs> Thanks what, for bringing that up to a national audience, David. Why, why were you thinking of uh, studying? No, I mean, why? It's a good have, question. We have great Egyptologists right here at the University of Chicago. Uh, I, let's I, be I, clear: I, the Egyptology department at Brown is the country's best. Okay, all right. Well, we're not going to get into that. Kind of thing. <laughs> But uh, why why Egypt, Egyptology? Why Egyptology? It was only a year that it lasted, as it turns out. I was not cut out for the study of hieratic and Coptic hieroglyphics. Um, I was really interested in the ancient world. I thought I wanted to be a, an archaeologist. And um, having never gone on a dig, and just having spent a lot of time at the Natural History Museum, uh, I thought it would be really great to study it and to be surrounded by, you know ancient civilization and or the relics of it um and brown happened to have like an incredibly great department so that's what my declared concentration was much to my parents chagrin i was also studying neuroscience acting and french that first (laughs) semester which is the only argument you need for a core curriculum yeah but it's all i mean that's really what liberal arts education sure is i mean it's a chance to expose yourself to really and actually i always argue you know, I never took a journalism course in my life. Me neither. And uh, I think being expo- exposed broadly to things is um, really valuable if you're going to be – because more than anything, what you need uh, to be a great journalist, I think, is intellectual curiosity. Absolutely. And and to see the world and talk to people in it. I mean, I always think, you know, I don't – I have respect for people who go to J school, but really you learn how to be a journalist by writing – about right. people and talking to them. Right. And, um, you know, I had always, I was the editor of my elementary school newspaper and my high school newspaper, and I edited the college weekly. And, you know, I always knew that I, writing was going to be a part of what I wanted to do. The Egyptology thing, I think, was just a brief psychotic flirtation with, you know, a parallel universe. We're going to take a, uh, a short break for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be back with Alex Wagner. So when you left college, you you st- first you wrote about music. Mm-hmm. Uh, another of your 
passions. passions. Well, culture generally, music is a really great entry point. I think to talk about all kinds of other issues, whether they're socio political, whether they're you know whether it's just straight ahead art. I mean, music is a window into so much about a society. So that was really interesting to me. And then you went to the Center for American Progress. Short stint as the. Um, cultural correspondent again this was a, i didn't even know they had cultural well, I don't know that, at the center for american progress one of the ideas was that policy making too often takes place in a vacuum with not enough engagement from the cult the world of culture and so i was actually headquartered in new york and part of the idea was to think of ways in which to talk about the issues that mattered and bring other people into the dialogue who weren't usually a part of it whether they were writers or artists or whatever um, and i did that for a fairly short stint I went back to more magazine writing, and then I started working for Not On Our Watch, which was... uh, George Clooney's group. Yes. George Clooney had been doing a lot of work in Darfur, and he wanted to formalize his work there, both in terms of the advocacy, but also he was raising money and granting it and wanted to grant it out to groups on the ground. So he, along with some of his pals, Matt Damon, Brad Pitt, Don Cheadle, and the late producer Jerry... Name Yeah, sorry. Humble brag. The uh, late producer Jerry Weintraub, they formalized it and decided to create a nonprofit called Not On Our Watch. And they wanted someone who sort of understood the handshake between, again, the the entertainment creative class and the sort of political policy making class. So I wrote a, you know, long brief about what I'd want to do and had an incredibly nerve wracking meeting with George Clooney. And I had a broken high heel. I remember that very clearly. And I got the job somehow and did that for a couple of years. And, and, and did you travel to Darfur and these... Yeah, I went to Chad, the Chad-Darfur border with George. I went to the Zimbabwe border with Matt. I did some work on the Burma-Thai border. Um, we had a lot That of- must have meant something to you, given your mom's history. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Burma has always been, for so long, and you know this, David, the president's done a lot of work, um, along with Ben Rhodes, um, to bring that country back into the world. But for so long, it was shuttered off to everyone else. And, you know, that's where my mom is from. And it's really weird to grow up with a, you know, my mom is from Burma. She's Burmese. There's a Burmese community in DC. And it existed as this kind of like far, far away planet in another universe that I could never really wrap my head around. And it was so shrouded in sorrow. You know, I mean, the Mm -hmm. human rights violations, the story of Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel Prize laureate, who was locked under house arrest. I mean, it was just so ripe with deep sadness. So it was super meaningful to be able to go over there and try and change things and support groups on the ground who were doing important work. And how impactful were your interactions with these refugees? Oh, huge. I mean, we I remember actually one of the groups that we supported was a group of secret video journalists who were basically under the threat of their lives, trying to gather news and information and footage relating to the Burmese military's systematic abuse of human rights, whether that was, you know, child conscripting child soldiers or, you know, mass rape or just the pillaging of the land, you know, they were trying to gather the information so that it could be smuggled out of the country so that the rest of the world could see. And that is just, you know, as someone who cared both about Burma and journalism, so meaningful to go to their offices hidden away on a side street and just see the bravery, you know, the smuggled cameras inside bags. Yeah. And they were so fearless. It's, and, and, it's getting harder 
because of the sort of fractured nature of the world and the sort of the the dissolution of of uh, norms that used to govern um, you know combat and conflict it's getting harder to be a journalist and uh, much more dangerous i have just unending admiration for people who do that work to shine a light in places where they're so it's so desperately needed so you uh, uh and then you you decided to become a journalist but well i'd been writing so i'd been writing for magazines for years even, and then off of the Clooney stuff yeah. i thought you know i it was really it was the it was the I don't know if you remember this. There was called the Saffron Revolution in Burma. These monks took to the streets in mm-hmm. 2008. And they, and I just felt like the, the stakes were just getting higher and higher. And I'd been traveling around the world with these guys. And I thought, you know, I just want to go back to writing about the world. So I had been writing. I'd contributed a couple pieces to um, various publications. And then I was offered a job covering the White House for Politics Daily. And I'd never covered the White House before. But I thought, okay. And it was an incoming new administration. And I was really curious about what was going to happen. So I moved to D.C. Yeah, the Obama administration. Yep. And, um, and I moved to D.C. and got a seat in the briefing room and that's when it all like I think that's a big radical departure yes. from the kind of journalism you had sure doing. yeah and and I think you know in part Melinda Henenberger who hired me is a great wild person yeah. liked the fact that I had international experience and cultural experience but not really inside the bellway experience she thought that, that would bring I think a fresh perspective and I also think you know you have to be tenacious and sort of jump in with both feet if you're going to be a journalist and she knew that I could do that so how did you find I I you know I, I've spent the early part of my life in journalism uh and obviously I've dealt with journalists all my life uh and I covered buildings like I was the city hall bureau chief for the Chicago Tribune and so on um but I find the white house a kind of weird beat it because is. so much of it is you're dependent on what you're handed and Enterprise reporting is really tough because the place is kind of locked down. So in a sense, there's a element of sten- – I don't mean to denigrate all the fine people who cover the White House, but there's an element of stenography yeah. to the job that I would find kind of frustrating. And it did, I mean, I, I, look, I wasn't the White House reporter for an extended period of time. It was like a year and change. Um and I think it par- it is kind of stifling. I mean, you are going to those briefings every day. It becomes kind of this insane cat and mouse game with whoever the press secretary. It was is Robert and, Gibbs at the time? It was Robert my, Gibbs, my buddy, and 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 <laughs> and I mean, Gibbs, as far as press secretaries go, was a great press secretary because he would he would say things, you know, like and you get the sense that Gibbs really knew what was going on. He mm-hmm. wasn't just kind of a random mouthpiece. He he sort of understood what, what was going on. He was unusual in that mind. regard because usually the press secretary is exactly that, just a spokesperson. Yeah. Uh, Robert was really an advisor as well as a spokesperson and, and he had spent so much time with uh, Barack Obama as a candidate, as a senator and now as president. He really did know and uh, sort of what what his thinking was on most of these things. Yeah. And, and Robert, you knew when Robert was pissed off, you know, he, he, I mean, I'm sure to the chagrin of the administration, sometimes Robert would make news. Yes. Um, sometimes but, as we but say, the, subtle as a screen door on a submarine. Yeah. Yeah. So, but for the press, that was great. You know, um, there was it, it, in, in what can be a fairly humdrum daily existence, 
Robert definitely made it more interesting. And, you know, I mean, a lot of stuff. Look, that was an incredible time to be covering what was happening in the White House, whether it was the BP oil spill yeah. or the Arab Spring. I remember, my friend, I, mean, I was on the other side of yeah, all Yeah, you that. were. And that was tough, you know? Yeah. That it was, was tough. It was an incredible, those first couple of years were jam-packed, both because of the incoming and the, all the ambitious things we were trying yep. to get done. But, um, you know, starting with the economic crisis, it was... It was really a... Trial by fire. It was. It was, I'll tell you, uh, an incredible time to be there. I, I will, wouldn't trade that experience for anything. So you got then plucked out of there and yeah. became a TV star. How did that happen? <laughs> um, so I had gone to college with a wonderful man named Chris Hayes. Yes. And he uh, and I had been friends forever. And he was guest hosting a show on MSNBC. And he knew that I was covering the White House. He was living in D.C. at the time. He said, do you want to... Chris is from, you know, I know him from Chicago. He was yeah. around here working for the nation. And, exactly. Yeah. Everyone knows Chris Hayes. Yes. Um, so Chris... Big Cubs fan. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Threw out the first pitch, not but a few games ago. Trust me, I know all about it. Yeah, him. yeah, I'm sure I, you do. He sent me all these pictures. Yeah. He sent everybody all those yeah. pictures. Um, so Chris was like, do you want to come on TV and play TV with me? And I said, sure. So I was on once and they MSNBC kept calling and then in short order they offered me a show which was totally absurd but I said yes and moved back I I at that point I'd been the Huffington Post and AOL merged so I was at the Huffington Post and I'd been I'd come back to New York and then I started working at MSNBC full time in 2011 how is that adjustment? You obviously hadn't trained to be a <laughs> no, television No, and if you've ever seen the program, that I think was abundantly evident. That's not true. I actually, you know, my feeling, and we were talking about this a little before we started, my feeling is that television, like politics, and partly because politics now plays out on television, um, is such that uh, authenticity goes a long way. If people feel like they know you, like they're really getting the real you, uh, I think they respond to that, you know. And um, that's true in politics. It's true among people who spend a lot of time on TV. And you're very, very natural on that's, TV. Thank you, David. Yeah. And I, you had gr- you had great discussions on your show. It, I don't know how the, the muckety-mucks at MSNBC felt about it because you always wanted to kind of dive in in, <laughs> in in ways that were more than superficial but that's uh, but to my mind that's really valuable yeah i mean i do podcasts yeah well and don't we love this podcast <laughs> i that's I, what i was looking for thank you and it, the, the, the success of podcasts and this one in particular david is evidence of the fact that people do like in-depth i discussion. agree with this i mean the hunger for it is like it's so obvious i think it's interesting because you what you hear in uh, you know the modern media world is that no one has the attention span for long form stuff, um, and yet there's an audience. There's an audience for this, and there are many other great podcasts out there. Uh, and people uh, they're they're starved for real conversation. Yeah, I and I think you know conversation was always the thing that I was most interested in in terms of my show at MSNBC. The cruel reality is that there have to be commercial breaks. You know, and a show is beholden to a certain number of them. And, you know, I would always try and say, well, can't we just cancel one? And <laughs> it was like, no, Alex, 
we have to get the money from our sponsors because yeah. that's how this place stays afloat. Um, but, you know, I think being naive about exactly what could and couldn't be done was actually a strength in terms of launching that show because we sort of did what we wanted to do and it worked, you know? Um, and I was lucky enough to have incredible people like yourself join the program. And I think that, you know, the level of discussion that we had was, I'm very proud of it. Um, you know, it's hard to sustain that for over a long period of time, but we had a really good run of almost five years and, you know, now I'm at CBS, which is also home to, I think some of the most serious. Yeah, congratulations. This you. just, this is new. new breaking news, breaking news, as they say, yes, <laughs> but you're going to be, gonna be a co-host of their Saturday morning. Yep. And I'll be working news. across the CBS news platform. So <clears throat> you'll see me on a number of CBS shows. They have their, uh, their online, their digital they have online, but. I'll be doing stuff on the weekday show and Sunday morning and a whole bunch of stuff. That's great. Are yeah. you excited about getting back into? I am, you know, and I think CBS um, under the, the, the stewardship of David Rhodes yeah. has made a real... Ben Rhodes' his brother. Exactly. Keep it in the family. Um, is made a real investment in news. I mean, they've decided that that's what they really want to do. The hashtag yeah. is news is back. And I couldn't agree more. You know, I think especially in these times when there's the proliferation of fake news, for example, and there's so much misinformation for having for a major network to say, look, we're going to go hard on news, not just that in the nighttime, but in the morning, which is all, like, you know, there's a lot of fluff in the morning. Yeah, they made an interesting play, which was they decided that rather than being more like the other shows, yeah. they were going to try and be distinctive and be uh, heavier into the news rather than less so. Counter-programming. Yeah. And I think they, they think, you know, there's like we do, there's a desire for inf- real information about, you know, the world in which yeah, we I'm are. I'm a with. fan. I'm a, I'm a fan of what they're doing, especially, and now I'm a bigger fan. <laughs> Uh, now that you're uh, now that you're on board there, well let's let's talk about the news. Yeah, um, you you've been doing writing for Atlantic. Yes, where Are you I'm going to continue stay, doing yeah. that. I'll still be a contributing editor. I have a big magazine piece coming out in a couple weeks. On what? It's actually about Hollywood and race, and you know I think one of the things that we do to to inf- I mean you know we think about politics as something that happens inside Washington, but of mm-hmm. course politics is tied to culture politics is tied to society. And I think, you know, you look at this election, we looked at the race as a horse race. We looked at it as a series of, of poll numbers. And I think one of the reasons we miss a story is we didn't look at it in terms of the fabric of American society. And, you know, George Packer wrote a book called The Unwinding, mm-hmm. which actually foreshadowed everything that happened in this race and told us more about our country than any of the poll numbers or any of the exit poll numbers. And I think what we need to start to begin to do is to try and look at politics in the context of culture and society and to not have economics reporting in one bucket and social and cultural reporting in another and political reporting in another, because of course all these things cross pollinate one another. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, with my background, I'm absolutely still interested in what happens inside the Beltway, but I'm really also interested in stretching my legs and talking about what's happening elsewhere. I in think the this is really important because one of the byproducts of what's happened in our economy and the sort of stratification of our economy, where you have, uh, you know, a group of people who are doing very well, mostly clustered around these metropolitan areas. Uh, and, a, and a whole bunch of people in this country who are uh, kind of hanging on or not, or not uh, who have been disadvantaged in some of the economic shifts 
that have happened. I think one of the reasons why media miss so much of the story is that uh, we live in different worlds. Yeah. And if anything, this should be a warning assigned to everyone who covers this stuff to get out of their towers, get out of their cities, get in their cars, drive around. Uh, and talk to people. Yeah, I just went to do a piece for Sunday morning in Mississippi, and it was actually really reassuring to be elsewhere in the country because you, rem- you know, just everything is different when you're not inside the sort of Acela corridor, and it's really important to get out of there. You said earlier that you, you, your dad came from a place in Iowa, small town in Iowa, where work and community mm-hmm. um, were the values that that really uh, people closely held. I mean, Iowa was a place where Donald Trump turned the, the turned the table on Democrats and won a state that Democrats had been carrying. And, um, you know, my sense was that uh, these folks uh, feel discarded, disrespected. They don't think their values uh, are respected. And, um, and they are feeling the brunt of these changes in the economy. Iowa had a lot of small Yeah, and my dad's my dad's town was on the um on the Mississippi River and there was a button factory which was made the buttons were made of um shells from the river. And the button factory was like the the gig in town. That's what people were employed by and it just shuttered a couple of years ago. And it really is the closing chapter on a way of life for that part of the country in that town, you know, and these stories are unfolding across the country. And, and, you know, we focus on a campaign in the context of the candidates, but not the voters. And I think what 2016 showed us is we need to recalibrate that and focus on the voters. Yeah. I, um, I, I want to get back to the piece you're working on, uh, and, and, and dive into that. But, um, you know, we were talking about this before we we we, we began the podcast about um, we live in revolutionary times. Technology has changed, changing everything, and changing everything. I think faster than we can get our arms around. Yeah, changing the way our economy works, changing the way communications work, changing the way politics works, and I think there are a lot of folks who are uh, discomfited by this. And, you know, Donald Trump likes to talk about winners and losers. There are a lot of people who are on the losing end of some of these changes, or at least feel they are. And, uh, you know, I don't think that there's been enough attention paid to that. And we as a country have challenges to meet in terms of how we get our arms around all this in such a way that those values of work and community uh, are are still honored and people have opportunity. Yeah, I mean— the inevitability of technology makes this daunting, right? I mean, not going. You can't. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. It's only going to automation gonna is going to take half the jobs that right. exist at the sort of white collar level by twenty forty. I think it is. That's going to dramatically change the U.S. economy and the way right. people think of themselves in the workforce. And then there's just information. When you talk about a sense of community, you know, Facebook's amazing because you can be in touch with that guy that you went to high school with. But whether if you want to right exactly. But whether it really fosters a sense of connectivity is a, an entirely different question. And I think, you know, as human beings, not to get too heavy handed about it, when people are in pain, they need other people. And yet, I'm not sure that the technological innovations of the last five years have made the mitigation of personal pain any easier. In fact, I think I might have made it harder. Yeah, I think that there's a faux 
sense of community that comes from uh, some of the new technology that's not a substitute for real interaction, mm-hmm. like in a town like where your dad came from, yeah. where neighbors look after each other. I mean, my dad has these stories of at Christmas time, there would be a ham in the mailbox or homemade cookies, and they would he would go on his he would follow his dad on the mail route, and at every stop, there was a little homemade present for the mailman yeah. because you knew who your mailman was, you knew that he had six kids, and it Christmas time, that's just what you did. Now, some of this is shrouded in a decidedly Norman Rockwellian, you know, yeah. like there were downsides too, which I go into in the book that I'm writing. But, you know, that sense of kinship with the guy who delivered your mail and the butcher who made you, you cut your meat and the, the garbage man who picked up the garbage. I mean, we don't have, I mean, we don't have that. And to some degree, you know, we've, we've gotten other things in, in benefit, Right that I won't detail here, but we've definitely lost something. And I think we're coming to well, terms with that Well, and the loss. benefits have accrued unevenly. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a real sense of loss in a lot of these towns. And um, that's why Amer- Make America Great Again yeah. is such a Nostalgic. Sedu- seductive uh, concept, this notion that we can bring it back. We can bring back the factories and the coal mines. Um, but nobody wants to, I mean, the, the saddest part of it is that you know, the, the the energy economy is what it is. The coal industry is not going to be coming back. I mean, that's just, it's, it's an, it's a, there are things that can be done in certain sectors. There are certain regulations you can repeal, but that kind of American manufacturing, that kind of American energy production is fundamentally a thing of the past, just based on technology and where we're at. Yeah. And that, ho- the hollowness of parts of those promises, I think is almost gut-wrenching. Well, and I, I think that they can. There'll be a real recoil um, down the line here if uh, those things don't come to fruition. Um, but there is a challenge. I mean, I think to the whole political system here and to leadership to think through what do we do with all those folks who, as you say, are going to be displaced in the economy because uh, jobs are more than just income. They're I mean, a they're, sense of identity. And self-worth, it's how people define themselves. We're going to take a, a speaking of capitalism, we're going to take another <laughs> short break, and we'll be right back. Alex, talk to me about the book. You've been working on this book forever for for a long time, so I know it's going to be great. <laughs> it's going to be good. Tell me, uh, tell me all about it. Um, um, it's a book for Random House. I have an amazing editor. His name is Chris Jackson. He just edited the Ta-Nehisi Coates book, mm. Between Me and the World. He did the Eddie so Wong book. So it, it'll be at least that good? Um, no. It's definitely <laughs> not going to be that good. But that's a good book that he edited. Great, great book. He has a new imprint coming out. So this is going to be one of the first books on his imprint next oh, year. Um, it's a book about... You know, I think we're grappling particularly right now with this idea of who are we as Americans. And so I explore that question personally by looking at the two poles of my family story. My mom's immigration story from Asia and my dad's kind of classic old world, new world story from Europe. And explore how sort of the ways in which we've passed down these stories are both misleading, but also you know, they inform a lot about our present sense of American identity. Um, So it required a lot of travel back to Luxembourg and England and Burma. I talked to a lot of genealogists. I went into the uh, DNA-based ancestry world. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's half, I mean, it's reported 
insofar as you know i report i know how this turns out you were related to the queen of england yeah as it turns out i am royalty (laughs) uh which you you the sense of entitlement is warranted (laughs) uh yeah i mean it was totally fascinating um i hope it's good it's it's much more personal than i thought it was going to be and and what did you learn, not just about your family, but where did it lead you in terms of your thinking about the country? Well, I think we tell ourselves these family stories that are necessarily ga- kind of gauzy, warm ideas about what we left behind and what we got when we came here. And the truth is, what we left behind, you know, the old world with all of its traditions and, you know, um, cultural practices that may have been lost was also filled with strife and problem. And half the time, or all the time, the things that we, the problems that were quote unquote left behind in the old world were, sorry, the problems, let me start that over again. Half the time, the problems we think are sort of endemic to this America right now were problems that were part of the old world. Yeah, I think that that is an important thing to absorb, you know, I spent uh, an, an hour the other day with Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, who's always comforting, amazing uh, in in times of uh, of stress, <laughs> yeah. because she reminds us that there are other historical epics in which uh, there was a rapid change in our economy uh, with an overlay of immigration that created the kinds of tensions that we see today we we worked our way through those things i mean it took a second world war probably to bring cohesion i hope we don't have to go there in order to solve yeah, me these, too. these problems but um it is um it, it, the one thing that uh, i've been thinking about a lot i'm the son of an immigrant um th- you know you 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 hear this discussion about the pernicious impact of immigrants immigrants built this country this yeah. is a this it's a cliche but we are a country of immigrants and now we're an aging country and if we're going to continue to be a dynamic country it's going to be because of people who come from other places in the world who see their the possibility of living out their dreams here that's the magic of this country i worry that that's going to be threatened a little now. Yeah, I feel like we're doubling down on a sort of tribalism that seems kind of dangerous. Not just here, but also in Everywhere, other advanced around the economies. World, yeah. Around the world. You look at what's happening in Europe. You look at what's happening in the UK. Um, you know, tribalism is dangerous. And I think one of the lessons that I learned, probably the hardest from this book and doing all the research, is that you know, even when you talk about DNA, we are humans before we are anything else. And you talk to a number of evolutionary genealogists and they all say the same thing. You know, we are more alike than we are different. And that is, you know, it sounds like pablum, but it's so important to remember. You know, the thing that brings us together is us. And I think the more we can remember that, and I I personally believe the thing that unites us isn't blood or soil, but the times in which we live. This is our time on earth. And it is up to all of us to decide what we do with it. Yeah, I think one of the things we were talking about technology uh, before, the technology has given us the opportunity to parse ourselves in ways in communication. So we talk to our own, you talk about tribe, we talk to our own tribes. Mm-hmm. In politics, we appeal to our own tribes. Um, and it's very easy to in, invoke 
fear in our own uh, tribes. It's you know it's interesting that even technology uh, we think of it as advancement, and it is advancement, and there are a lot of great things that flow from the new technology. But it also has, in a sense, sent us backward. Yeah. By undermining that sense of community we were speaking about before and makes it hard you know it gets in the way of seeing our common humanity yeah people are in foxholes you know and and it's kind of i mean that's one of the things of this election it's like you just want to tell people don't go back into the hole like stay above ground and and that you know breathe the air don't go back down into the darkness because i think a lot of people are scared a lot of people feel rejected. A lot of people feel like they're not a part of, they're not at the table. And like the trick is to say, you know, like the table is, it's ours, you know, and, and it is a collective effort. It really is. Even if it doesn't always feel like that, it is. And and the only way, you know, it's just important for people to stay in the light. I know that sounds like probably a little heavy handed, but I, yeah. I do believe it. You know, you have to, this is the work of being a part of a democracy. So how are you going to make the adjustment uh, to your new gig? Mm, um, good question. Because um, while CBS has, there's a serious commitment to news, yeah. it's not quite what MSNBC no, was, which was a kind of progressive gab fest. Yeah. And that's probably not what they want you to do no, here. no. Is it going to be hard to restrain well, yourself? Yeah. <laughs> well, you can always just come get me after a couple you drinks, yes. you know. No, I look. I think. I think one of the things that I used to do, and we had plenty of Republicans and conservatives on my show. I you know I have a great relationship with Grover Norquist. Yeah. Um, funny guy. Right. Totally funny guy. And other and plenty of other Republicans. Um, I, you know, I. It is about dialogue. It's about, you know, it is fundamentally not a, a dialogue show. And it's about the news. And it's about what's happening in the world. And I'm, I think there is a place for opinion and there is a place for, you know, a circling of the wagons and catharsis. But I think the work right or now is... Or a circling is, of the Wagners. Yeah. <laughs> That's called a family reunion. Yes. Um, you know, the trick right now is to not talk amongst ourselves. Like everything that I just said, I'm really excited to be working for a network news program that reaches 4 million people. Yes. Um, because that's we, we need to be talking to each other right now. Um, there is a desire, I think, to kind of close the doors and say, can you believe what happened? But really, like, if we're moving the ball forward, you got to talk to everybody about things that matter to everybody. So let me ask you about cable TV yeah. in particular. You were at a station, uh, you were at a network that very self-consciously reached mm-hmm. out to a particular cohort of viewers with a particular point of view. Fox is a network that reaches out to a particular cohort with a particular point of view. Uh, is that good? Look, I mean, I would take issue... Says the CNN guy. Yeah, right. Well, I would take issue with the comparison between Fox and MSNBC just because... I think, if, and I'll just talk about primetime, the rigor that people like Rachel Maddow and Chris Hayes bring to the job in terms of the research. Yes, and, uh, right. And and look, they're very they're critical of. Uh, I thoroughly accept that, but uh, but but yes, in terms of talking about issues that having an overwhelmingly progressive point of view, I think you know, did it get us to where we are now? I'm not going to single handedly blame Fox and MSNBC for the high partisanship. Um, but I don't, I mean, you know, 
I think it's a really bad thing that the public trust in media and the fourth estate is a, is is deteriorated to the degree that it has. Frightening. When you don't have common conversation and a common set of facts, it makes governing impossible. Yeah, I mean, that was a frustration that I felt when I was in government. And, you know, our new president, and he is our president. Yeah. We only have one at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, has, as a, as a strategic matter... Um, decided that he will impeach those news organizations that are critical of him and embrace those that are uh, are friendly to him. Mm-hmm. And um, so that kind of exacerbates the, the problem. And it's going to be very tough for news organizations in the next uh, however many years he's on the scene. Yeah, I think that, the, you know, I uh, I can't imagine what it's like to be Maggie Haberman at the New York Times right now. I mean, I think, you know, even this week, there's been so much back and forth, so much vitriol directed to the press by the incoming Trump administration. You know, I'll say President Obama was not great in terms of transparency with the White House press corps. Uh, That is going to look like people will look back at those days fondly if the incoming president behaves in office the way he is as president-elect. I mean, the but lack I see of now, access. Why would we uh, expect him to behave otherwise? I, I, because there's some thinking that the office and the gravity of it is going to change his impulses. I mean, well, I don't here's know. Here's a guy who's defied gravity, right, so I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't sure know why. Yeah. Um, and he also has been able to use his distru- his hatred of the media to his advantage. Because, the yes, I, I think the fact is that it be, there is an association in the minds of the voters who supported him uh, with the elite uh, that they have a real beef with. And the media is lumped in there and sometimes deserves to be uh, because there isn't enough listening done. But this notion of uh, the impeachment of sort of objective fact is uh, is a scary development in our politics. And, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know how you reel that back in. I don't know how you do either because I think people, and I was saying this yesterday, people are going to informa- news for emotional catharsis and not actual information. And yeah, once, I say to uh, affirm rather than yeah, inform. Yeah, and that's yeah. really problematic. That's not what news and information is supposed to be for. You know, it's, facts are not supposed to be um, affirming. They yeah. are what they are. And when people want to sort of tailor make their world, that's when you went into real problems. Yeah. But you're now in a position where you can tell stories. Yeah. And hopefully uh, give voice to the, the, the whole spectrum of the American experience. That's the experience. idea. That's the idea. Yeah. I mean, I think storytelling is still an incredibly powerful way to tell people about what's happening. It is. Well, yours is an amazing one. Wow. And it's, as, as, as you cruelly pointed out to your older colleague here, <laughs> yours is just beginning. Oh, God, David. So uh, In dog years, I'm like a thousand years old. I am actually, I'm, I pretend like I'm young. I'm not. I'm approaching middle age. Well, there, you're a wonderful journalist, and there's a lot... A lot of chapters ahead in your your Thanks, story. David. So thank you for being here. Oh my gosh, Alex it was Wagner. my pleasure. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.